Well, good morning. Glad to be here with you today. So I was sitting there in my parents' house watching Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve celebration on ABC. It was 1999, and it was a special year for a couple of reasons. One, this was the turn of a new millennium. This was the, we were moving from one millennium to another. That's kind of a big deal, the year 2000, right? And, and two, there was this mass hysteria about a potential global computer crisis called Y2K. Do you, does anybody remember Y2K? Anybody remember this? Apparently computers were going to stop operating because they wouldn't be able to calculate the new date at the turn of the century. Apparently computers were kind of dumb in 1999. And so banks were going to collapse, elevators were going to stop, the power grid was going to shut down. It could very well have been the end of the world. And so I'm sitting there watching Dick Clark's uh, New Year's Eve rockin' celebration, waiting for the ball to drop in Times Square as it's ticking to midnight. And I'm telling you, right at the moment that the ball hits the ground and it turns midnight, all of the power in our house shut off. And my heart was kind of doing the thing, and I was, what's happening? And then I heard this cackling near the breaker box in our house, and it was my dad pulling a very timely New Year's Eve turn of the millennium celebration prank. It, it was really, really funny. <laughs> Human beings tend to be fascinated with the end of the world, don't we? We, we, we? we like the end of the world. It's actually kind of sadistic if you think about it. Our movies, our books, our TV shows are all centered around this apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic world. And so you have Bruce Willis saving the world from an asteroid that no one could see until like a month ago. And they go up and, and they explode the thing. And when you, Aerosmith is headlining the event. And, and, and then you have Katniss Everdeen, who is trying to live in and navigate this post-apocalyptic world that has been decimated and divided by war. Our media, our books, our cultural products are, are pointing us to this idea of the end of all things. But it's not just that. The, the, the news that we consume on a daily basis also does this, right? Do, do, do you remember uh, on January 13th, 2008, it was 8 a.m., and, and it, this was during this heightened tension of nuclear war, potentially with North Korea. This happened just last year. And, and residents in Hawaii at 8 a.m. got this message that came through. All their phones started buzzing and beeping at the same time. And it said, emergency alert, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And it took... 38 excruciating minutes for the residents of Hawaii to find out that someone just made a communications mistake there. We're kind of living in some interesting times. Did you know there's also this thing called the Doomsday Clock? Have you seen this? This is put together by a group called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and they publish this a few times. Uh, I think they've, they've updated this 23 times since they've existed. They, they started in 1947, and what they're trying to do is warn the public about how close we are to destroying the world. 
And, uh, and so they're counting down the minutes to this metaphorical midnight, and midnight is the end of time, the end of all things. Currently, we sit at two minutes to midnight, according to this group of Nobel laureates and scientists, and, and this is the closest we've been to the end since the Cold War and the, the nuclear arms race with Russia in the mid-20th century. It's really interesting. So there's this doomsday clock. We, we, we have this fascination with the end of all things, with the end of the world. We're, we're consumed by it to some degree. And, and, and the problem with this is, is it's not that we're thinking about the end of time, because the scriptures tell us to think about the end of all things. The problem is we think incorrectly. We tend to think incorrectly about it. And I think there are two errors in thinking when it comes to the end of all things. The first one is apathy. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even think about what you're doing later on today, let alone what's going to happen at the end of all things, right? And so there's this apathetic, laissez-faire, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't really care, I want a burrito, you're speaking too long. That's, I mean, this, is the, this is the attitude that we sometimes adopt in our lives. And, so, and the scriptures warn against this, they warn against this kind of attitude because apathy makes us unaware and, and unprepared for what is to come. Make no mistake, the end of all things is coming. Jesus is coming back. He promised he would. He fulfills his promise, and we don't want to be caught sleeping. But it's not just apathy. We also have this, this absorption, this being absorbed or consumed by thoughts of the end of the world. And here, we examine the world news, we look for blood moons, and we tend to try to decipher all of the signs that point us to the end of the world. And the scriptures also warn against this kind of attitude because when you are absorbed or obsessed with this thing, what you tend to do is become susceptible to fear and false teaching. If all you think about are all the horrible things that happen in the world, you will probably panic. Or if you're looking for a sign, you tend to find one, even if that sign is, is, is given by a false prophet. And so what then is the proper response to thinking about the end of the world? How should we rightly think? Not apathy, not being absorbed by it. How should disciples of Jesus think, live, and act in light of the promised return of King Jesus? That is our talk for today. And it's a perfect talk because I think I saw an ark on the road out there on my way to church this morning. It was a, it's a little wet out there today. There's some, there's some Noahic flooding happening. And so if you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be looking at this whole chapter. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you because it's too long. There's too much going on here. But we do want to read this and try to understand what is Jesus saying about the end of all things. So let me read it for you and then we'll get moving here. Matthew 24 verse 1 says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. 
you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other, and, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of this wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or during the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. This is a warning. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Where there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, and then all peoples on earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is Close. Even so, when you see all of these things, you know that the end is near. It's right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is God's word to us during what seemed to be very hard and troubling times. Amen? That's the sermon. I'm done. <laughs> and so as we examine this text, I think the first thing we need to look at is how do we understand this? Before we even get into what does this mean, and, and, and admittedly, apocalyptic, prophetic literature is super easy to interpret, isn't it? Right? Now, th this is confusing stuff. 
What is this saying? If, if the meaning were really clear, then there would be a lot of agreement about what it's saying. But there isn't a lot of agreement. And so how do we understand what Jesus is even laying out here in Matthew 24? There is mystery and wonder in this, and meaning doesn't jump right off the page. And so we want to answer, how do we understand this? And so Jesus gives us the setting right out of the gate. It's still Passion Week. Jesus has just finished his indictment of the religious leaders, the woes to all the Pharisees. And now he and his disciples are leaving the temple. They're walking out of this gate, and they're walking back towards Bethany, where they're likely staying during Passion Week. And on their way there, they hit the Mount of Olives, and they take a break. But on the way out of the temple, the disciples look up at the massive stones and the elaborate buildings and, and this ama- the grandeur of this thing. And they say, look how amazing this temple is, Jesus. And this temple was amazing. Most historians agree that, th- that this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is, a, this is not a real picture, okay? This is a, a, a rendition. So one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this was the second temple built in Jerusalem. The first one was built by Solomon. It was destroyed when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. This temple was built when the the Israelites came back from exile and Zerubbabel and Ezra rebuilt this temple to establish worship, reestablish worship in Israel. Then a guy named Herod the Great in about B.C. 20 decides he's going to start this massive reconstruction project on this temple. And here's what you need to know about Herod the Great. He doesn't give a flip about Yahweh or Judaism or the sacrificial system. He is just trying to garner favor with all of his subjects. He's trying to build a monument to his dynasty so people can say, look at that amazing thing that Herod built. And he did. He built this unbelievable structure. It was constructed from B.C. 20 all the way to A.D. 64. That's how long this thing took to build. One of the commentators I read said the temple was impressive, covering about one-sixth of the land area of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It was not just one building. It was all of these different buildings with majestic colonnades and and, in different parts, different edifices, courts surrounding the temple proper. And it was made up of these massive Stones and, and, and some people say that this temple, w- w- they moved stone, the, the, the heaviest stones that have ever been moved without machinery were a part of this temple. In fact, they found one at the base of the western wall in Jerusalem. This stone is 45 feet long, 13 feet wide, and weighs an estimated 570 tons. This is massive, majestic, permanent structure. This is an amazing temple. And so you can see why the disciples would be a, just a wee bit confused when Jesus says every single stone in this place will be flipped upside down. It will be turned over. Not one stone will remain. You see, because everybody th- thought this, this temple was permanent. The temple is going to last until the end of the age. But Jesus says, uh-uh, this thing's coming down. And his prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70 when the emperor Titus of Rome laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, AD 70. And and he sacked the city and he destroyed the temple. And there were these terrible accounts of starvation and famine and cannibalism. 
And the, the, the Jewish historian Josephus says that nearly a million people died during this siege of Jerusalem because it did take place during a Passover and it was winter and all these people are gathered there and they just decimated and destroyed this city. A horrible event. But none of that had happened yet. And so Jesus is on his way back from the temple, and they stop on the Mount of Olives. We're on the Mount of Olives right now. These are the tombs that are on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus said, you Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs, he was looking at some of these tombs on the Mount of Olives that were whitewashed, dead on the inside, sparkly on the outside. And they've stopped probably overlooking this whole temple mount area here. This is where the temple would have sat during this time. And as they're sitting there, Jesus' disciples come to him, and they ask him two questions that launch us, launch Jesus into his fifth and final discourse in the book of Matthew. And this whole big concept of what's going to happen at the end. And those two questions were, when will this happen? That is, the destruction of this very permanent temple. And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Two questions that launch us in to what we're talking about here today. Now, let me just say this. There is a lot of dispute about how to best understand the verses that follow these questions. And and I read several commentaries uh, studying for this, and and several godly scholars disagree strongly about how you best interpret what is happening in these verses. There's lots of dispute and lots of disagreement. And so a word of caution to you and to me and to anybody who's trying to interpret apocalyptic literature is maybe we should come to it with some measure of theological humility. And and maybe even we should say, I could be wrong here. I might not be right. And so I'll say that to you. I could be wrong. I'll be teaching some things that I think from my personal views kind of work itself out from this text, but I may be wrong. And and then there's something else that's important here. The specific details of what we believe about the end of time are not a die-for issue. Does that make sense? What you specifically believe is going to happen as the end of the world comes is not something to, uh, to, to excommunicate someone over or to disfellowship over or to argue about and hate one another over. There, there are some general principles in Scripture that Christians have believed for several thousand years that, that, that we probably need to agree to, like Jesus is coming back, not a spiritual return, a literal bodily return of Jesus coming back to this planet to fulfill his promise, the second advent of Christ, that, that those who are trusting in Jesus will, will be resurrected, bodily resurrected. They'll be redeemed and they'll be glorified and they'll reside with Jesus in eternity, that Jesus will come and judge the earth. Those who are not trusting in Jesus will be eternally separated from God, whatever, however, whatever that means, however that works itself out. So, so we do have to agree to some things, but outside of those general principles, there's a lot of room for debate and discussion and disagreement here. Make sense? It's like our discovery book says, in, in unity, we, we want, in, in the essentials, we want unity. In the non-essentials, we want liberty. In all things, we want love, love, love. That's how we should act as Christians. Now, the primary interpretive issue as it relates to this passage is how much of this text do you believe happened in the first century? And how much of this text do you believe is, is a yet 
prophetic event that has not occurred yet. How much happened before AD 70 and how much is going to happen when Jesus comes someday. And there are three views as it relates to, to, to how people understand this. The first view, some people believe that Matthew 24 is only predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. That, that Jesus is only writing about the things that are happening between his generation and, and A.D. 70 when Titus sacks Rome. And, and I think this view is problematic uh, because Jesus seems to be saying some pretty apocalyptic things here, doesn't he? Uh, verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. Verse 30, that Jesus is going to come on a cloud in glory and his angels are going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. Those are some pretty apocalyptic things. And so I, I don't think this first view makes sense. Uh, and, I, and I get to stand up here and teach. And so, hi. Um, so some people think that it's only talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Others think that there's this really neat division that happens in the text, that verses 4 through 35 are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then verses 35 through 51 are talking about the future return of Christ. And I think this view is problematic as well, because the text really doesn't divide all that neatly. Like I said, verses 30 and 31 say that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in this cosmic uh, way on clouds in heaven with great power. The angels are gathering all the people. That's, that happens in verses 30 and 31. But then in verse 34 it says, this generation will not pass until all of these things have happened. This is, an, this is a problem. Because if this generation means the people who are, have lived from the time of Jesus until AD 70, then the issue is Jesus didn't come back before AD 70. There are some people who hold really divergent end times views that think Jesus did come back, and now we're living in the millennium. Sounds kind of crazy to me. If this is part of heaven, then, uh, right? And so I don't think this second view makes sense. The third view is that there's this intertwining between both near and far prophetic fulfillments, meaning prophecy about historical events that have already been fulfilled and future events that will be fulfilled are both intertwined together here, and we're seeing both. They're layered on top of each other, uh, it, and I think this view makes the most sense. Some scholars call this double fulfillment or prophetic foreshortening, and the best illustration I've heard to, to understand this is, is mountaintops. And so if, if you're looking at, at a landscape and you see a mountaintop, you're standing on one here and you see a peak here and you see a peak there, you, it, it looks like these peaks are kind of close together as, you, as you're examining this scene, but really there's a lot of distance that separates the tops of these mountains, but, but you're seeing it all at the same time. And, and it, I think, and, and many scholars believe, that that's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is seeing both a, a near fulfillment of prophecy that's going to happen and a far fulfillment of a prophecy that's going to happen. And so, for instance, in the foreground, we have this destruction of Jerusalem that occurs in AD 70, and Jesus is describing it, and all the, 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 the don't go from your roof and go back into your house and don't go get your cloaks, run away. All of that was talking about AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, but there's also this far fulfillment that Jesus is describing about the return, his future return, the return of Christ. And they're kind of layered on top of each other. Make sense? You with me? Okay. 
Apocalyptic stuff's hard. Remember that. Okay. Um, and there's a perfect example of this in this text. And, and so this is one of the most famous end times passages. This is what lots of people argue about and disagree about. Lots of people have made money writing fictional books about what might happen in the end times. And so Matthew 24, 15 says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. It's really clear, right? This is, a, this, is, this is not just a double fulfillment prophecy. This is very likely a, a triple fulfillment prophecy that's happening here because in the second century BC, a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes came into the Jewish temple, the second temple, and he slaughtered a pig on the altar to the Roman god Zeus. And, and Jews look at that moment as a fulfillment of the abomination that causes desolation, an unclean animal slaughtered on the altar in the temple. That was one fulfillment. But Jesus doesn't seem to be saying Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled this in Matthew 24, does he? He seems to be saying there, there is yet another future fulfillment of this abomination that causes desolation, probably the destruction of Jerusalem for, for a variety of reasons. The, the gospel writer Luke calls the, the sacking of Jerusalem the desolation of the city, the desolation that happened there. So there's kind of this nearer future fulfillment. But the Apostle Paul even writes about a further fulfillment of this passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. It says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, interesting term, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So I want you to see we have kind of this three-layered fulfillment of what's happening in this passage from Daniel in Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians. We have Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century who, who had this abomination that caused desolation. Then we have the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we have this future fulfillment, this man of lawlessness, this antichrist figure that some people write about and think about. And so I, I, what I want you to understand, to understand this text, you have to see how prophetic literature is sometimes layered on top of itself. That there are things that have happened, and there are things that are happening, and there are things that will happen. And, and, and sometimes, as, as Jesus or, or the prophets describe these events, they, 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 really don't, they really don't delineate between those. It's like peaks of a mountain. I'm describing that peak, and that peak, and that peak. And so the next question then is, what are some signs that point to the end? When you're, you're on a road trip you see those green signs on the road that point you in the direction toward the city that you're going. Katie and I just went to Kansas City for our anniversary, and I love the countdown when you're on the road, 130 miles to Kansas City, and then 70 miles to Kansas City, and then 30 miles to Kansas City, and then you're there. Signs are, are given to us to orient us to where we are on a journey. And Jesus seems to be saying that there are some signs that we can expect that will orient us to where we are in our journey towards the end of all things. And, and specifically, he, he's, he's talking about the last days. And the rest of the New Testament, 1 Peter 1 and 1 
John 2, it, it, it talks about the times that the disciples were living in and the times that we're even living in today are the church age. This is the last days. We are living in the last days. You and I live in the last, eight, last days. Peter and John and Paul, not the Beatles, they were living in the last days, right? And so you have the ascension of Jesus, you have his return, and then you have these hills and valleys of what's happening in what Jesus describes as the last days. And he points us to a few signs. What are they? Number one, false messiahs will come. People who come and either claim to be a savior, I've got all the answers for you, if you follow me, you'll be saved, you'll have your best life, whatever. Or people who claim to speak on behalf of the Messiah, but are really trying to deceive people. False messiahs will come during the age of the church. Number two, wars and rumors of wars. Uh, just this past week on Thursday, there were rumors of war in the United States that there was an order from our president to, to fire on Iran because they shot down one of our, our drones and, and the order was rescinded just before conflict started. So we're living in these volatile times where there are rumors of wars. Number three, nations will rise against nations. This is not war so much as it is th this geopolitical jockeying for power. This is economic sanctions. This is meddling in other countries' elections. This is trying to position yourself as a global power. This is tariffs and whatever. It, it's trying to put yourself on the world stage so that you can, you can contend against the other kingdoms of the earth. Number four, famines. Uh, not just ecological famines caused by drought and by uh, climate change, but, but political famines caused maybe by corrupt governments like we've seen in Venezuela. Where, where people are, are literally starving to death because they don't have food because the government is corrupt. Number five, earthquakes. These are happening all over the world, all of the time. This is actually one of the signs, these, these cataclysmic, seismic events. People always say, well, maybe, maybe we're in the end times. Now, I don't know. I do know that I read an article from the LA Times last week that said in San Bernardino and Riverside counties in the past three weeks, there have been a 1,000 earthquakes, a thousand small earthquakes, and that geologists are saying that the new normal should be to expect a big one at any moment. So there's earthquakes during the end of all things. Number six, persecution. According to Open Doors, which is this global organization that, that works with the persecuted church worldwide, Christians remain one of the most persecuted groups in the world. We don't feel it as much here, but the rest of the world feels it. During their, their report this past year, they reported 4,136 Christians were killed because of their faith. That's 11 a day. Or 2,625 Christians were detained without a trial, arrested, sentenced, imprisoned. We live in a persecuted age. In some places, persecution is, is more rampant than it was in the first century today. Go to Open Doors' website. They have some incredible resources here. Number seven, apostasy. Do you remember what this means? This means renouncing your faith, giving up on your faith, turning away from Jesus. And some people will do this because of the persecution that we just talked about. And others will do this because life will just get so hard and suffering will be so prevalent that they just give up. They give up. They can't sing the words to reckless love. You've been so kind to me. You can't say that you've been kind to me. 
And some people just let go of the rope and they give up. Apostasy will occur in the last days. Number eight, false prophets. These are people who come claiming to speak on behalf of God and they teach things that are actually counter to what Jesus taught. They, they may even claim to have a new, better understanding of what Christians have believed for thousands of years and they come claiming to speak on behalf of Jesus, but false prophets will be a part of the end of days. Number nine, this was the one that stood out to me most as I was reading this, love grown cold. Love is the, the primary driving ethic and value of the Christian life. And so in the last days, there will be Christians whose hearts are put on ice and they become like this walking dead, zombified version of a believer that, that there's no warmth of love radiating from people who claim to, to, to follow Jesus. Their love has grown cold because of the wickedness in their own lives and the wickedness in the world. Love grown cold. And then, the only positive one in this list is that the gospel will be preached to the whole world. That in spite of persecution, in spite of suffering, Christians will continue to carry the mission of Jesus during the church age, and all people will hear. The world will be saturated with the good news of Jesus. Amen? Now, according to the understanding of this text that we just gave a, a few minutes ago, all of this has already happened. All of this is happening, and all of this will happen. In fact, the, the gospel preached to the whole world. Paul in Colossians 1 says, the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, the good news of Jesus. And so this is a near and a far fulfillment of things that are happening in the church age. Certainly when we get closer to the end here, the heat gets turned up. Things start ramping up and, and as we get closer to the second advent of Jesus. Okay, Let's go back to, to how we think about the end of times in light of these signs. We have these two ideas. We have apathy and we have absorption, being apathetic towards something or being absorbed by it. Apathy assumes indifference, boredom, a, a lack of, of urgency. Now, what do you think would happen to a person if they were living in the times when all of these signs were happening, but they were apathetic? What would happen? They would miss the signs. They would, I don't know, they, they would skirt through life, hypnotized by the, the, the looking at their feet all the time, not looking out at anything else, and they would miss the very obvious things that Jesus is allowing to prepare them for what is to come. And, and Jesus says these things are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I have never given birth. I have never given birth. It's, it's funny. Okay, thank you. Katie, my wife, has given birth three times. Amen, amen. Thank, you, thank God he's never given birth. Uh, has given birth three times. And, and when she started feeling the beginnings of birth pains, that didn't mean a child was coming that minute or that second, but it did mean you grab the go bag and you head to the hospital because there's going to be a baby at the end of this thing. And so these signs are the beginning of labor. And if you are apathetic towards this, you may miss the birth of your child. 
You may miss this significant event that's happening because you are apathetic in this crucial moment in history. Apathy leads to unawareness and unprepared. You don't have a go back because you're not even aware of what's happening. What about this this idea of of, of absorption? I can't say that word. Absorption, being absorbed or obsessed by these things. Absorption leads to panic and susceptibility. When When we become obsessed with the signs of the time, then, then we start meditating on all the horrible things that happen in the world. I have a family member, I won't tell you who it is, who calls me on the reg because I'm a pastor and, and they, they want me to interpret all of the events in world news because they're terrified that we're living in the end times. Because if I can just be obsessed with it, and if I can think about it, if I can wrap my mind around it, then maybe I can control it or avoid it, is what ends up happening here. And so we become panicked, or we become susceptible to, to any, any fool who writes a book about something claiming to know when Jesus is coming back. I've studied the lunar, lunar cycles, and there's a lunar eclipse here, and, and you should buy my book because I know something that Jesus didn't know when he's coming back. How arrogant is that? And I want you to notice what Jesus says here. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not what? Alarmed. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. You don't have to control all this stuff. God is working out human history exactly like he intends. These are just the beginning of birth pains. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to obsess He doesn't want us to panic. He doesn't want us to be apathetic. He wants us to trust and obey and persevere and avoid deception and be prepared for his coming. And so let's go back to our original question that we asked at the very beginning. How should disciples of Jesus think and live and act in light of the promised return of King Jesus? Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. It's an interesting passage. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, what? Keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also, what? Be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus is telling his disciples his return will be sudden it will be unexpected it'll be like a thief in the night it will be like the the flood that consumed the world nobody was prepared for it everybody was just living life therefore his followers should be vigilant and watchful we should keep watch we should be ready other parts of the new testament say be sober-minded don't be drunk in your thinking 
Don't dull your senses. Be ready. Be prepared for what is happening. Don't be obsessed and don't be apathetic. Keep one eye on heaven as you have one eye on earth. Ready at any moment. Living for the things that matter. Praying about the things that matter. And so our attitude should not be apathy or being absorbed or obsessed. It should be holy anticipation, hopeful anticipation, longing anticipation for a God who will come back and restore a world that has been broken. Anticipation assumes preparation. It leads to preparation. When we anticipate something, we prepare ourselves. This past week, Katie and I had some friends, Chris and Dee Dee Pearson, over for dinner. And, 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 and in anticipation of our friends coming over for dinner, we cooked and we cleaned and we were in go mode because we anticipated the coming of our friends. And you better believe we cleaned and we cooked until the moment the doorbell rang. And when they walk in, we're like, it's always been like this in here. When we anticipate, we prepare. We prepare our hearts. We prepare our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we shut our... Anticipation doesn't mean you shut your life down and you go live in a bunker and you wear a helmet and you eat canned food the rest of your life. It means you keep going to work or you keep going to school, you keep living your life, you keep planning, but you have a view towards forever for eternity. Jesus is coming back. We live in this world, but this is not our home. We were made for a different country, a better one. Martin Luther said that that if he knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, that he would plant a tree. It's because Christians understand that the end of time, the end of all things, is, is not actually an end at all. Is it? It's a beginning. It's a restoration. It's a redemption. Revelation 21 tells us that we don't get lifted up to heaven. Actually, heaven comes to earth. He's redeeming and restoring this whole world. He has made us for himself. And so we should live lives of anticipa- hopeful anticipation, living for what matters. There's this scene at the end of Return of the King, which is a fitting title, where Samwise is confused because the ring has just been destroyed and he thought that he was dead and he thought that Gandalf was dead. And he wakes up and he says this, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought that I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What happened to the world? That's what we're going to say. What happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, Gandalf said. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And he listened, and the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, a pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. And that is what eternity will be for us, remembering what it's like to laugh, Remembering what it's like to be fully and completely satisfied in the God who is making all things new. And so 
In the meantime, we watch and we wait and we prepare. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are returning. Thank you that you're a God who keeps his promises. Thank you that there are so many of us who have lived abandoned lives. We've been abandoned by people who love who loved us or who should have loved us, Lord, but you will never abandon us. You rose and you were coming back. And we pray right now that we would just be smacked with that reality, Lord that the understanding that you are coming back, you are coming back, and we should live in light of that reality. Thank you, Lord, that you are not far away. You're sitting right at the door. You're patient, you're loving, you're wooing and drawing. And may we worship the King who is returning, the King who is coming back here today. Amen, church? Amen? Let's stand and worship him right now. As we do every week, we have communion available in the back of the room. We want to encourage you to to move around, uh, minister to one another, pray for one another. We'll be worshiping for a few songs here. And so when you feel ready, go take communion. Let's worship the King who is coming back.